Hello, welcome to the eighth episode of Analog Thoughts. I am your host, Stephen, aka Mount Analog. How are we feeling? How are we doing? How are the vibes? Are you making things? Are you making the best of your situation? I hope that you are. And Thanksgiving just happened. I am very thankful for food, very thankful for family and friends, very thankful for existing and having creative outlets and uh, living in a, you know, America isn't the best country, but it's certainly not the worst. So I'm stoked to have the freedoms that I've been, that have been allowed to me (laughs) or not allowed to me. I'm stoked that I'm stoked to have the freedoms that come with living here. Even though we can do a lot better, America can do a lot better. We should still strive for better. It's not perfect. I mean, perfect is kind of, utopia is fundamentally unobtainable, but we should always strive for better. We should always strive to be existing in a more prosperous, more uh, freedom, more a country of more freedoms, always reaching for independence and freedom and self-expression and Anyway, um, what's been going on in my life? So I've been working on a lot of music, been putting out some singles, have another single coming out soon. And I'm trying to maybe do that for a few months, maybe just keep going with the singles. I've been having a lot of fun with making experimental electronic music. Again, not just rap tracks, or I did the metal metal album for Halloween, and that was really fun, but I've been re- having a lot of fun just getting back into writing and programming beats and weird glitchy stuff, so I think I'm going to do that for a little a little bit, or keep <laughs> ride that, ride that uh, creative inspiration that I've been feeling for a little bit. If this is your first time joining us, hello! They're really, also, if this is your eighth time joining us, hello! There really isn't much of a format to the podcast. I kind of just pick a topic and ramble about it for however long. Usually something, well, always something I'm interested in. (laughs) I used to take questions that were from, uh, I I used to take questions and answer said questions, and I did that for a few of the earlier episodes, but for the format of the last uh, six or so episodes, this one included, I have just been picking topics of my own and kind of exploring them and talking about them. And I kind of like the way that that format has been going. Uh, the, the last episode was a deviation from that a little bit. We did a guided meditation because I felt, I just felt like, you know, people were, people needed it. I needed it. I needed to, I needed to needed a little self-reflection time and a little time to just sort of take account of what I was thankful for and ground myself a little bit. I think we can all, uh, you know, we all need to check on our health, mental health, check on our friends and family's mental health, especially during the holidays, because things can get really, even though it's really, um, it's a really lighthearted feeling time, on the surface, it's a really hard time for a lot of people. It's not an easy, uh, people don't have an easy go with it because there's, it brings up a lot of emotions about family and a lot of emotions about loss and death. And it can be really, 
intense to navigate those things. And it can be really, you know, the holidays just can bring up this whole uh, swelling of emotions and this whole swelling of things that you, I don't want to say had been neglecting for the other parts of the years, but it just can kind of bring things to the surface. Things can bubble to the surface. And a lot of people have a really hard time during the holidays. (laughs) So just remember to be mindful of where your head's at and where the where the head of your loved ones are because holidays hurt. Sorry if I'm breathing heavily. I'm like I'm having a hard time breathing uh through my nose. Usually in the winter the <laughs> the the podcasts to come are probably going to sound like I'm fairly winded because in the winter I become a mouth breather because it gets so the air gets so dry uh my nose just kind of stops working. So you're going to hear me like gasping for air. I apologize in advance. (laughs) Oh yeah. Another thing too is I'm, if the audio sounds a little different than the other um, seven podcasts before this, I'm using a different microphone because my studio space um, and the other rooms in my house have been invaded by, I don't know, like there's been a lot of construction going on like a block away from my house. And even though I'm recording this at night, there's some sort of compressor or some sort of like a very audible tone that was just destroying the uh, the audio quality. I tried to record this podcast yesterday and it just wasn't an option with my regular condenser microphone. So I'm actually using, not to get all teched out on you, but I'm actually using a like a performance uh, condenser microphone just so that it picks up the audio directly in front of the microphone and not the compressor that's down the block on the construction site. (laughs) So things sound a little different. That is why I am using a different microphone than I usually do. Um, On this episode, I'm going to talk about Egypt. I'm going to talk about ancient Egypt. Before I get into that, though, I'm going to I, I want to talk about one little quick thing and that is my Patreon. Uh I'm not sponsored by anyone. I just do this podcast in my I don't want to say my spare time, but my like extra time. It's kind of it's it's a fun thing for me and it's I hope a fun thing for the audience where you can sort of broaden your horizons and broaden your perspective on on things and uh you don't have to sign up on Patreon, telling your friends and telling your family about the podcast is would be really cool. Also, if you are listening on Spotify or Apple Music, you are able to rate the podcast, and that definitely helps me get more uh, into more people's ears. It helps me get the podcast in front of more, in front of a broader audience. And leaving a review on, if you can leave a review, leaving a review on whichever platform you're listening on really helps as well. Um, but yeah, my page, my Patreon is Mount Analog. If you go to patreon.com and search MT period, A-N-A-L-O-G-U-E, you will find me there. You get, uh, early access to, depending on what, which tier you sign up at, you get early access to this podcast. You get early access to all of my music, all of my video content, and all of my art, uh, I share over there early for all of the patrons. And I'm working on, I have some exclusive uh, 
I have some Patreon exclusive, more Patreon exclusive stuff that I'm working on as well for the future. So keep your ear out for that. Anyway, I'm winded now. My breath, uh, <laughs> my nose is fucked. <laughs> breathe, Stephen. Breathe. I'm just gonna take a sip of water. Sweet, sweet, sweet hydration. All right. Egypt. Why ancient Egypt? Why am I talking about Egypt? I think that their culture is really fascinating. It's always interested me that their um, technological prowess and their and just where they sat in time. They seemed to have been super, super advanced thousands of years before a lot of other civilizations, other than maybe like the Mesopotamians. Mesopotamians. Uh, Mesopotamians. I don't know why I'm struggling with that. <laughs> anyway, uh, they were super advanced in a super inter- interesting society. They're, they're, uh, they're one of the most famous ancient civilizations. And I'm going to talk a, a little bit about their history, culture, gods, and deities, and other such things. Uh, things in Egypt happened a long time ago, and they lasted for a very, very long time. They lasted from 3000 BCE to 320 BCE. So BC, I'm going to use the nomenclature BCE. It just means before the common era, but it's the same thing as BC, which is before Christ. I'm just using BCE because it's a bit more secular and hasn't, hasn't Jesus done enough? Like, hasn't he done, hasn't he done enough? So I'm using BCE because... (laughs) And you also have to remember that time moves um, in, we count down to zero when we talk about BC or BCE. So we're going from 3000 BCE to 320 BCE, approaching, approaching 1 AD. So the ancient civilization of Egypt lasted for a really long time, just shy of 3000 years. And these dates are they're all kind of estimates because kingdoms kingdoms and empires don't really just spring up overnight and they don't really dissolve overnight, you know, completely. It's always this like long process that's not just like, well, but this year Egypt is a thing and we're fully established. At least not at least when we talk about civilizations that are this old, um, it's hard to pinpoint exact dates on when they came and when they went because they usually when they go, they usually, like Egypt, get kind of dissolved into other cultures and things get kind of blurry. As you probably already know, there is a river that runs through Egypt. That river is still there today. It's called the Nile. And the Nile was the probably the biggest component of ancient Egyptian success. It was, uh, uh, it was a super navigable river to bring in goods and ship out goods from to and from Egypt. And it flooded every summer at pretty pretty specific and perfect times. The ancient Egyptians were able to use the Nile's flooding to their advantage. And after the flooding of the Nile receded, it left behind nutrient-dense silt that made for perfect planting of crops. The soil along the river was so nutrient-dense, in fact, that they could literally just throw seeds wherever they wanted, and stuff would grow. 
So the Nile would flood, leave all of this nutrient-dense silt. They would go out and just start throwing seeds. They would have their cattle just walk over the seeds and also fertilize the seeds. And then, boom, they'd have grains, figs, melons, vegetables, fruits, huge, bountiful harvests. And you'll find that throughout time, usually, wherever there's a super booming civilization, there will almost always be uh, really good farming conditions. Wherever we have civilizations that are just crushing it, a lot of it has to do with their ability to grow mass quantities of food and not have to worry about farming too much, which is pretty cool. Um, It's also worth mentioning that you should uh, think of this time in Egypt as um not as deserty it was it was the egypt and this region of africa as being far less arid and less of a desert as as is it as it is today and since the nile was so giving and made the soil so fertile and all of the ancient people of egypt lived almost exclusively next to the nile uh it was responsible for their bountiful harvest. It was responsible for shipping things in and out of Egypt. Grain, gold, linens, foods, timber. It was just their life. It was their life vein that flowed through the region. Not to keep on harping on about it, <laughs> but it had. It also had, uh, the Nile had tons of gold deposits all along, uh, all along it. It just was covered, not covered, but it was coated in gold, and Egyptians are heavily responsible for the worldview of gold today. Gold to them meant power, it meant wealth, it it meant importance, and that's kind of how we see it today. We see it as this, like, oh, like, gold chain, gold rings, gold, and Egypt kind of did that. Egypt kind of created this precedence of gold being this rare material that you would mine and and create um important amulets amulets and jewelry and things out of so there was a lot of gold along the nile and this also contributed to egyptians uh it also contributed to egypt's wealth and sustainability ancient egyptians also considered gold a divine metal given to them by the gods so they were ball- the Nile was giving them this nutrient dense soil that they could grow bountiful harvests with harvests with and it was also giving them tons of gold because they were just gold deposits all up and down the Nile so they were balling out on the food department and they were also balling out on the gold department they were just rolling in gold and rolling in food <laughs> they were also Ancient Egyptians were also incredibly skilled artisans, and they were able to craft things that were highly sought after that they would also ship down the Nile. And I'm sure like on the Discovery Channel or YouTube videos or some at some point throughout your life, you've seen how advanced they were. Um, their levels of craftsmanship and technology were so advanced and ahead of their time their agricultural techniques and building and crafting techniques were be, like they were beyond most of the civilizations of their time. 
by many, many years. They were super advanced people. And a lot of historians attribute their success and advancements to their ease of living. There was a lot of time to think and plan and create. And because of all, uh, because of, all of the blessings that the Nile gave to them, they were able to just kind of be ahead of the game. And they were able to play around. They grew food with little effort and they didn't have to expend much of their mental energy on it. So they had time for, you know, building otherworldly structures and complex writing. Um, well, languages in general, they were, they had written one of the first languages. They had created one of the first written languages and they had a culture full of different philosophies, interesting gods, and just really amazing ideas. And they also had a pretty different philosophy on what the afterlife meant compared to most other civilizations of that time. They were pretty optimistic about what happened to you when you die. And not to say there wasn't... um, not to say there wasn't a dark side to the Egyptian afterlife. There was. But in the Egyptian heaven, I'll just say the Egyptian heaven, uh, they kind of looked at it looked at their Egyptian heaven as a continuation of life. And their journey wasn't their journey didn't just end there. They weren't um they didn't go to heaven and just worship a deity and that was it. Kind of like the Christian ending. You go to heaven, you're with Jesus, happily ever after. You could, in the ancient Egyptian religions, you were able to go into the afterlife and still go on these grand adventures. So they weren't looking at death as an end game. You didn't just die and then it was all over. Uh, You went to heaven and you still did cool stuff. I mean, you could still go to hell, the Egyptian version of, of hell, um, if you did bad in your life. So that sort of mentality did keep them from, did <laughs> did keep the society and culture in check, but they didn't look at heaven like how we have been sort of, I don't want to say trained to look in heaven in the West, but kind of how heaven is presented to us in, what, in the Western civilizations. Uh, they didn't look at it that way. And I think having this open and continuous philosophy on death allowed them to keep reaching for bigger and more amazing things. So with an optimistic view of death and not having to worry about food and not really having to worry about income, the ancient Egyptians were free to explore and create really marvelous things. Not for the entire duration of the almost 3,000 years of their existence, but during this first period, they were able to uh, explore and get pretty deep into creating things. Eventually, like most civilizations down the, down the road, things get really twisted and messed up. But at first, it was pretty, it was all right. They were, they were balling out pretty hard. Um, as far as their religion, religions went, the ancient Egyptians were polytheistic. So they believed that gods and goddesses controlled the the forces of human nature and the supernatural world. These gods shaped the world they lived in. 
Temples were created for gods. Laws were created because of the gods. People came into power and left power because of the gods. It was a super complex system of gods, and most of their manifestations took many different forms. There are a whole, whole bunch of gods, all um, all dedicated or all controlling different forces of nature and different forces of emotions and different forces of justice and truth and death and decay. And uh, some of the most notable gods were Ra. Ra is the, he's kind of the top dog. He's the god of the sun, the god of balance, the creator of the universe, and the source of life. And he's probably the most important god. He's the god that is the most revered and the most celebrated, was Ra. And then you have Anubis, who is the god of death, mummification, embalming, and the afterlife. He takes you to the Egyptian underworld, and he has a really cool jackal head. <laughs> um, and so you hear, you hear me talking about how Anubis is the god of death and also the god of mummification and the god of embalming. The Egyptians, as you probably already know, were super um, fascinated, not fascinated, they were super, their religion and their journey into the afterlife and having safe passage into the afterlife was really tied into ceremony, uh, death ceremonies and death rites and doing really doing things really properly, preserving bo- your body very properly and embalming your body very properly were all super important, not only just for celebrating your life and celebrating your journey into the afterlife, but also for you having safe passage into the afterlife the thing the mummification and embalming and things like that had to be done very in a very specific way next we have the god set who is the god of chaos disorder and violence he has a beast head that isn't really it's not really any known animal and some of the gods some of the gods were like this so some of them would have human heads. Some of them, some of them would have like the head of a falcon or the head of a crocodile, and then some of them would just have beast heads. It'd just be like a creature, you know. Like we can't really. It's not really a wolf. It's not really a bear, but it's this. It's vicious, and we know it's a creature. So sometimes it'd be a fusion, like uh, like a dog with a beak or a cat with a human mouth or something like that too. There's all sorts of fusions and variations like i said before the gods manifested in all of these different forms so you'd see raw some you'd see like raw sometimes with a falcon head and then sometimes you see raw with like the falcon head that had this orb above it with this snake coming out of it and it would it, they would just be depicted in different ways you know we're talking 3000 years of of deities and so for them to transform and mutate only makes sense so aside from the gods i want to get just a little bit into the cosmology of the religion the metaphysics of what made their religion tick because i think it 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 lends itself a bit well a lot to how they operated as a culture 
and uh, how they operated just in their society. So bear with me for a minute because these concepts are going to be a little um, wiggly and abstract, but they are they are fundamental to the way that the ancient Egyptians <clears throat> viewed the human soul and human existence. They broke they kind of broke the human condition, the human form into different areas. So if your physical form, your spiritual form, and other forms that kind of coalesced into what makes a human a human. So the first thing is mat. And mat is truth, balance, order, harmony, law, morality, and justice. And mat, all of these things were personified into a goddess, the goddess mat. And she regulated the stars, she regulated the seasons. Mat is what Egyptians were striving for. They were striving for this harmony amongst the gods and harmony amongst themselves. It's sort of this concept that you need to be in balance with reality. And that if you are out of balance, things can get really chaotic and really bad. And this concept personified into uh, a goddess. Next we have next we have Ka. And Ka is the vital essence of a living being. It is what separates you from being alive or dead. And when you died, your Ka leaves your body. So don't think of it as it was it was wild when I was wild when I was reading these because I had to take notes to kind of differentiate what these things were because they're they're pretty large concepts and I'm just breaking them down. I'm kind of boiling them down to make them a little more um, digestible. So don't think of Ka as your soul itself. Think of it as the life inside of you. It's the it's the um, essence of life rather than being your soul itself think of it as that it's what makes you living it's it's what it's all the electricity inside you that makes you living i guess think of kind of think of it that way and then next we have ba and this is more ba spelled b-a the last one's ka spelled k-a this one's ba and this is more of what your soul is it's everything that makes you unique it's your personality. It's different from the base level of Ka. It's the special sauce. It's the special stuff that's that makes you, you. And in ancient Egypt, this was usually depicted... <clears throat> excuse me. In ancient Egypt, this was us- usually depicted as a bird with a human body soaring through the sky. So if you, if you see a bird with a human body in hieroglyphics um, kind of flying, that is usually depicting Ba. Next, we have the shut, S-H-U-T. And the shut, it literally is your shadow. Ancient Egyptians believe that since your shadow is always there, it's always present and with you, that it was an energy that was tied to you and part of you. And many Egyptians believed that when you died, your shadow would come out of your tomb to do weird shadow stuff. (laughs) 
And I think this is a really interesting one. Not that your shadow is... They kind of looked at it as a version of Ba, but this mysterious under... under um, not underworld version of Ba, but this mysterious darker version of Ba. So it's it's your soul. If you were looking at like a in the mirror at a bizarro version of your soul, that was just a form of you and wasn't really you, but attached, but still kind of was and attached to you. And I also read the the um, the phrase "a mere shadow of his former self" is perhaps um derived from this that that phrase um is perhaps derived from the the ancient egyptian idea of the shut or the shadow next we get into sekhem s-e-k-h-e-m and this is your soul in the afterlife after you are judged after all judgment has been passed and you either go to the Egyptian heaven or hell, uh, you are your soul is transformed into this sekhem. So this version of you is different than your living soul. This is you've been judged, you've gone through the all of the ceremonies and the gods have placed you where you are going to spend the rest of eternity and now this is the new you. Next we have Ren. And your Ren is your name. The ancient Egyptians believed that this piece of your soul would live on for as long as your name was spoken. And we kind of adopt this philosophy today. Like, people will talk about, people will say, your grandpa will still be around as long as you've got stories to tell about him or the basic mentality of just people don't truly die unless they're forgotten unless down some way down the road way way down the road when there's no um you know no one in your family lineage remembers you and no one has any writings or pictures of you or no one has any thoughts you know your complete your name and your uh, history is completely wiped out, then you're then you're gone. That's the concept of Ren. That's the concept of your name. And they attach this directly to your soul. It was a piece of who you are and who you would or wouldn't become. <laughs> and it's kind of a it's like I said, these are all kind of broader, more abstract concepts, but I think that one has that one's a really interesting one to me. The next one is the ib. I which I'm I'm calling it ib. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, but that's what I'm that's how I'm pronouncing it. It's just ib or would that be ib? I'm going to say ib. And the and ib is your heart. And the heart was the key to the afterlife in ancient Egypt. It was how you stayed alive after you died. Because after you, <laughs> in ancient Egypt, after you died, you could die again. And that's how you would go to hell. So there was death, and then uh, there was death after death. Um, 
but the heart held the mysteries of a, of a human, whether they did good or evil in their life. It was thought that after the heart was taken and examined by Anubis during the, a ceremony called the weighing of the heart ceremony, uh, it was weighed. It was weighed. Sorry, excuse me. If the heart weighed more than a feather from Mott, the goddess of harmony, truth, cosmic balance, and justice, then it was eaten by Amit, a goddess with the body of a hippo and the head of a crocodile, known as the devourer of the he- of the heart. And that person remained in the Egyptian underworld, dying a second time. So basically, during the weighing of the heart ceremony, Anubis would take a feather from Mott, put it on a scale, Take your heart out of your soul, out of your essence, put it on the scale, and if it weighed more than the feather of Mott, he would then take your heart and feed it to a crocodile hippo goddess named Amit, and then you would die a second time and go to the Egyptian underworld. But if the heart didn't weigh more than the feather, the bearer of the heart was free to go to Seket Aura, which is the... Uh, the Egyptian heaven. I, I'm, I'm just referring to the Egyptian... Uh, I'm referring to Sakat Ara as heaven and the Egyptian underworld as hell, just as Egyptian heaven and hell, because it's a little easier. Like I said before, it's their heaven is a little more nuanced than the Christian heaven. There's a lot more to do and a lot more to explore rather than just worshiping a deity forever. It's essentially a way cooler version of heaven. You don't just go there and be like, we're on these golden streets. Let's worship Jesus here forever and ever. This is such a good time. You could go to like their heaven and do, uh, you know, you could go on adventures. You could fight. Uh, You could fight other deities of, you could fight uh, like demons, basically. You could could, um, climb mountains and go through sick, uh, tunnels of egyptian psychedelia it was it was a cool place it was a really cool place the next concept of the human soul and we're almost through these human soul concepts but the next one is we just have two more the next one is the sa s-a-h sa basically if all the rites ceremonies and rituals were done properly and with osiris's approval um This was your fully intact spirit form. Basically, everything you were, all of the pieces conjoined into one disembodied form. So I know that's it's it's kind of confusing. We have the ka, then we, which is we have the ka, the electrical essence of your life. We have the ba, which is your soul, and then we have the sa, which is which is another form of your intact spirit which to me is kind of like the ba the shut um the sekhem all of these things combined into the sa is the way that i take this it's your it's your um fully formed disembodied spirit all coalescing into one thing not to get fully not to not to fully confuse but uh this next one is our last one and it's a little more wild of a concept. It's called Ak. A-K-H. Ak. 
and like I said, it's a little more abstract. It represents your deceased, transfigured form. It's often depicted as light. So this, this like how we have Ka, which is the electrical essence that all living beings have inside of them, this is sort of the dead version of that. Ak is the depiction of your dead dead light, your death light, I guess. And it is also it is often depicted as light. The concept of Ak varied over different periods of Egypt. So th- throughout the 3000 years, it sort of mutated and eventually it turned into this idea of a more ghostly or disturbed disembodied ghost. And ancient Egyptians were all about keeping Ancient Egyptians were all about keeping their tombs in order so that people could have safe and continuous harmony in the afterlife. If that tomb was disturbed, the Ak would develop into a roaming ghost, and they could do either good or they could do harm um, upon the living, depending on the circumstances of their death and depending on the circumstances or the current state of their tomb, rather. It could create nightmares, sickness, or anxiety, or it could be summoned by prayer to um, kind of weigh in on family affairs, to intervene in disputes or family affairs. Needless to say, ancient Egyptian gods and religions are super, super deep and have tons of deities and beliefs. And I think that just this, just these concepts may merit an entire podcast someday. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, um, I'm not gonna make this whole podcast just about the gods and the deities and the afterlife and the essence of the soul. But I may in the future make that an entire podcast. I don't know what I'd call that one: the Egyptian Spirit Cast, episode four hundred and ninety-seven. Man, if I make it to 497. No, 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 no. Not if I make it. When I make it. When I make it to 497, mark my words, we're doing an Egyptian spirit cast. And I'm going to, we're going to do another guided meditation. We're going to take our, we're going to, we're going to astral project to the pyramids on episode 497. Get ready for it. I'm going to train. I'm going to start training now to do a group meditation where we astral project our, our, our saw and our ka and our ba and our shut uh, and our ak all the way to the pyramids and we party with the ancient deities. If they'll have us, of course. I'm not trying to like bust up their party, but we can go hang out there and do cool Egyptian stuff. Like I said before, ancient Egypt lasted for a very long time. And I want to get a little bit into the, I want to get a lot of it into the history of the three eras of ancient Egypt, which are the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom. Pretty simple to remember. In the Old Kingdom, it's obviously the first phase of the Egypt of the ancient Egyptians. It's where we get a lot of the cool stuff we know about Egypt today. That's when a lot of the most of the pyramids were built. Uh, most of the ancient Egyptian gods, Ra, Anubis, Osiris, Horus. All of those first edition heavy hitters, some holographic first edition heavy hitters, some in the sleeves, very mint, very, very mint. They all came out of this old kingdom. 
And the old kingdom also sets the standard of divine kingship. People in charge were considered divinely appointed by the gods. Basically, uh, they would say, Ra says I should be in charge, so I'm in charge. And that's just how this is going because I'm talking to the gods, so you guys should probably listen to me so we can stay in harmony with the gods. And the people of Egypt were like, okay, cool, let's do that. It was also the responsibility of the pharaoh to maintain religious harmony between the people of Egypt and the gods. He or she acted as a, a uh, connection between the gods, a mediator, not a mediator, but a, a uh, what's the word, an ambassador to the gods. So the pharaoh would commune with them and their will would be done through the word of the pharaoh. Usually the pharaoh's eldest son would become the next pharaoh, but this mutated a bit throughout the uh, this mutated a bit throughout time, and eventually families negotiated new pharaohs. There were female rulers because the Egyptians didn't just keep the men in charge. Some some of them some of the most uh, some of the most noteworthy rulers of Egypt were women. In fact, they were progressive. <laughs> they were progressive in that in that way. Anyway. Uh, All of these standards were created in the Old Kingdom era of ancient Egypt. So where we get a lot of our gods, our monuments, our temples, our structures, our rites and ceremonies for burials, um, how kingship passed to the eldest son or eldest daughter. Uh, Yeah, just just rule the all the rules and the general ways the culture and government of Egypt conducted itself all happened during this old kingdom era i've talked a bit about how calm cool and collected the egyptians were because of their bounties but their because of their bountiful harvests and because they were rolling in gold so they were just kind of chilling and how their society was generally thriving but everyone knows that anytime there <laughs> anytime there's power or government or things start to an empire starts to be built that there's going to be some kind of nonsense in general just fuckery down the road there's going to be th- things are going to go astray pharaoh pharaohs ruled the land they were godlike god communicators they themselves were pretty much worshiped and they needed tight places to lay their bodies once they died and moved on into the afterlife. So if having a really cool tomb, if having like a really, being really set up when you died meant you were going to have this awesome passage into the afterlife, the pharaohs who were communicating with the gods and covered in gold and kind of balling out were like, hey, why don't you guys, uh, why don't you guys build us really, really cool places to lay our dead bodies. And then this cues up all of the monuments to the pharaohs and the labor that came with them. And this to me, and I feel like to most people, is one of the most interesting pieces of the Egyptian puzzle. It's like, y'all didn't, (laughs) it's like y'all really didn't have anything better to do than to build giant burial sites for your pharaohs. And the short answer to that is, yeah, kind of. Uh, Remember, most of their needs were met. And 
they were kind of just chilling and balling out. So they they needed a reason to <laughs> they needed a reason to do anything. They needed a reason to to work or exist. And the pharaohs wanted really cool tombs. That was that was the that I know it, it sounds simple. It sounds so simple, but those giant pyramids and all of those giant sculptures and monuments were literally built for that reason pharaohs who considered themselves to be god communicators and god like themselves were like yo make me tight stuff and the people were like all right i guess we're making you tight stuff and a lot of it also had to do with the concept that once the pharaohs died um they too themselves would become gods and the people of egypt didn't want to upset future gods so once the pharaohs died not only were they these kings and queens of the land, they would ascend and they themselves would become gods. So it's like, I someday shall become a god and I require you to build a monument to my awesomeness. You wouldn't want to displease the gods, would you? The gods who have given you life, the sun, and bountiful harvest, would you? And they didn't want to. They were like, Damn, you're going to be a god someday. We're not trying to piss you off, so I guess we'll make your pyramid. Whatever. And ancient Egyptians also believed in divine objects. They they believed in divine necklaces, ambulance, and other such things, swords, daggers, because gold was divine. And they also had beliefs that other precious metals and gems were gifts from the gods as well and could potentially hold blessings of power. So they would create objects out of these precious materials and not only did they think these look really cool they're made of gold and gems they thought they were imbued with divine a divine essence that could bring them power also as i'm sure a lot of you know the egyptians thought of many uh, animals as having divine powers as well or being directly connected with the gods and many of their gods were like i said before half animal half human hybrids and they really revered cats as well. That was one of their most divine creatures was the cat. And through all this, we're still on we're still just on the old kingdom here. The old kingdom set up a lot of the foundation of the rest of ancient Egyptian history. And during the era of the old kingdom, language was developed, specifically two different types of written language. We have the Hieroglyphics, which were used for sacred and ceremonial writing. Also, much of the writing we see on walls and tombs and sarcophagus. Sarcophagi? Sarcophaguses? Sarcophagi? Sarcophagi? Um, On sarcophagus. (laughs) On multiple sarcophaguses, we see hieroglyphics. And then we also have demotic script. Not demonic, demotic script which was used for everything else, like legal documents, contracts, conversations, literally everything else is demotic text or demotic Egyptian script. And I feel like for the most part, people think of the Egyptian language just as hieroglyphics, since that's what we mostly see in tombs or uh, sarcophagi. <clears throat> sarcophagi, excuse me, he <laughs> he. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's mostly what we see in the movies or what's depicted in ancient writing 
are hieroglyphics, but they also had this other system of text that wasn't as ornate and wasn't as um, embellished. It was more their common language. So, yeah, they had mul- not only did they invent some of the earliest forms of written languages, they had multiple versions of languages just to speak, which speaks volumes to how much they were balling out. They're like, we're not going to do one. We're going to do seven. I don't know if there were seven, but there were there were multiple. There were at least two, and I do believe there were. I know there were two. When I was reading up on this, I'm pretty sure there were like, because this is 3,000 years we're talking about here, so the language itself mutated a whole bunch during that time. And like empires, uh, when you look at the timeline of their language, it's a little blurry too. But at least two, probably seven. Seven's probably about where it landed, if not more. Over 3,000 years. Shit. Moving on to the next phase of ancient Egypt, we come to the Middle Kingdom. And a little side note here. Between the Old Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom, there was some turbulence. There were some droughts and some trade disruptions. And this threw the the kingdoms of Egypt into a bit of turmoil kingdoms were fighting for power, and there were different ideas being tossed around as to which families deserved to be pharaohs, so on and so forth. So don't think of Egypt as being just one kingdom at this point. It's it's many different regions. Don't think of ancient Egypt as being controlled by one kingdom at this point. It's many different regions with different pharaohs up and down the Nile River. And after this bit of turbulence where there's drought and trade disruptions and pharaoh disruptions and families, some Game of Thrones stuff going on, uh, we get into the Middle Kingdom. King, 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 Middle Kingdom begins. (laughs) At some point, all of this turbulence and all of this fighting stops. And there's order. And well, quote, I'm going to throw up some air quotes here. There's order again. And the correct air quotes again lineage of pharaohs is restored. If you're interested in dates, the Middle Kingdom starts around 2040 BCE. So Egyptian has kind of, uh, Egyptian Egypt has kind of been doing its thing for about a thousand years at this point. We've already gone through about a thousand years of ancient Egyptian history and we've only touched about a third of what they have going on. And we covered a lot. It's like ban- it's like it's like bands. Their first album is their their best album. It's where we got a lot of the where we got a lot of the pyramids, all the deities. We're digging up all this gold. We're just balling out. And Egypt's first album was tight. But once we move into this Middle Kingdom, starting around two, uh, 2040 BCE, things start to restabilize after the turbulence. And there are some new rulers that take the helm of Egypt. And they came in from a region called Nubai. That was a bit further south than where the previous rulers of Egypt had been from. They were considered outsiders. And they brought with them a new pantheon of gods to add to the list of existing Egyptian gods. They also brought new ideas and ways of living in general. Before these new rulers took the reins, the Egyptians considered Ra to be the top of the pantheon of gods, to be at the top of the pantheon of gods. And Ra, the falcon-headed 
dude, the top dog, the big guy, the god of the sun creation sky. He ruled the heavens, the earth, the underworld. He determined kingships. He was responsible for order. He was, like I said, the big, the number one. He was the number one deity. And once these new rulers from the south took over, they decided to make Amun the new centerpiece of the pantheon of Egyptian gods. They were like, out with the old, out with Ra, and in with Amun. And Amun was associated with air. Air. And the primordial creation of all things. Like how, kind of like how if you listened, or if you know of, uh, if you listen to the other, of, to my Hinduism podcast, or you know of Brahman, the embodiment of this eternal primordial frequency, Amun was kind of like that, in a way. He was attached to the creation of all things. He was considered a protector and patron of the people of Earth. He didn't look as cool as Ra. He had a regular, stupid human head. Um, but he did have blue skin. So, there's, I mean... There's a little something for you. Blue skin, stupid human head. Eventually down the line, Ra and Amun would fuse together and create the god Amun-Ra, which which many of us have probably heard. Amun-Ra to the Egyptians was this new amazing thing. They actually loved him. They revered him, and he took on the falcon head of Ra, so he was cool again. <laughs> the two the two gods combined like a Power Rangers Megazord and fused into this badass omnipresent falcon headed god 2.0. Let's go. Uh, also RIP to the Green Ranger. Just got I can't put a I can't put a Megazord reference in here without um paying my respects. Pour one out for the Green Ranger. The Middle Kingdom people and pharaohs made many temples for Amun-Ra and devoted much of their time and energy to worshiping him. And these new leaders that came up to the north, uh, these new leaders that came north up the Nile were a little more interested in conquering. They didn't just want regions of the Nile to be their kingdom. They wanted all of Egypt to be their kingdom. So they come up to the north and they're, they're like, yo, y'all are tight. And so here's this new god, Amun-Ra. We got this culture that we're going to, you know, share with you. And the Egyptians that were a bit further, the Egyptians that were up north were like, okay, we like this. We like Amun-Ra. We like what you guys have going on. And they're like, yeah, but also we could, like, we could spread out. Like, we don't have to just stick to by the Nile. We could, or like, we could take this whole space. We could take it all. And eventually, they did that very thing. So, like, I, like I've said a hundred times, they were balling out. They had a ton of free time. So, they had a ton of free time to design weapons and instruments of war. Compound bows, bronze swords, horse-drawn chariots. And one by one, these new pharaohs of Egypt took, took over all of the people who lived in Egypt. The main dynasty or the main group of people that took control of all of Egypt during the Middle Kingdom era were the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S. The Hyksos did a fair share of fighting and conquesting with force, but they were a little sneakier when it came to fully taking control of Egypt. 
A fair amount of the time, they would show up in regions and begin to to spread influence and culture without force at all. So they would use force if they had to. They'd show up and be like, we're taking stuff, you know, in, in places that seemed like they would harbor a little bit more resistance to the Hyksos. But when they could and when they thought it was appropriate, they'd show up and they'd start to integrate into the culture. And they would convert people of the region into worshiping Amun-Ra and slowly change the minds of the people of the region into the ways and customs of the Hyksos people. And this conquest of influence and culture and change and manipulation worked in converting all of Egypt. So places they couldn't take by force, they took by they took by cultural change and influence and manipulation. And the Egyptians adopted the Hyksos culture and military technology and many of their ways of life. And then the Hyksos people were expelled from Egypt. <laughs> so basically Basically, they're like, thanks for the new gods and the knowledge to build these sweet weapons now. Uh, Go ahead and just leave. And it's a wild, it's kind of a wild thing if you think about it. They show up, change the culture, share the knowledge, help them take, help everyone, they help all of the regions of Egypt take control of the entirety of Egypt, and then they get banished by another Egyptian dynasty. So they come in, do all this work, take over all these places, spread this influence, and then another Egyptian dynasty kind of takes over and they're like, get out, we're good. There's actually, there's there's a lot of historical debate as to how much of Egypt the Hyksos people actually were able to control. Because once they, quote, took control, they were writing the history books and they were writing them to suggest that they had taken control of everything. <laughs> And there's other evidence that suggests that they were, there were big chunks of Egypt that they didn't have control over. So that's one of those Egyptian historical debates, kind of a gray area, like how much of Egypt did the Hyksos people actually take over with their influence before they were kicked out of Egypt? Some historians are like all of it. Other historians are like most of it. Some of them are like not not as much of it, of it as you would think because they just kind of wrote all of this propaganda saying like we're in power now and so it's it's kind of a this we're talking thousands and thousands of years ago so a lot of information is open to debate and interpretation and in reality they were either way they were stirring the whole pot of egypt up so i think that for that region the egyptians were afraid that the Hyksos people were going to throw them into another state of turmoil and chaos and were like, get out of here. And I don't, I don't think they wanted to watch history repeat itself. And that's pretty much, yeah, I think that's pretty much why they got kicked out is they were starting to stir the, they, like I said, they were stirring the pot so much. They didn't want to see Egypt get cast into another period of turmoil. So they were like, you guys to go. And um, that's pretty much the end of middle of, of the Middle Kingdom era of ancient Egypt. Essentially, to sum it up, Amun-Ra shows up to the God Party. People love him. The Hyksos show up and spread influence and get kicked out. 
Egyptians are still thriving and now in control of the entirety, like the dynasty that has taken control after the Hyksos is now in control of not just all the the regions along the Nile, but the entirety of Egypt. They've kind of expanded. Or they've heavily expanded, rather. And if if you're into dates, we're getting into the new kingdom the new kingdom era but if you're into dates uh it's now 1550 bce and egypt is primarily controlled by a pharaoh named amosis and entering into the new kingdom era um egypt's been existing for quite a while at this point they're balling out they had a little bit of turbulence between the old and the middle kingdoms they were able to stave off the another bit of turbulence from the hyksus they've got new gods they've got a reinvigorated culture and they've got new powerful weapons and egypt decides to do what all flourishing empires do when they've got things going on they decide it's time to expand once again outside of egypt and well expand this time going outside of Egypt. And with swords in hand and powered by chariots, they decide to move south and search for more gold and slaves. And it's funny how all of this Egyptian stuff ties into the episode I did about revelations. At this point, you could say that Egypt was starting to become a sort of Babylon, a type of empire with, you know, with the context of their religious ideologies, essentially where they had become what they hated. They become, they had become debaucherous and they were just looking for gold and slaves and they were trying to expand the empire by for, by brute force and it was, um, yeah, they were looking like a Babylon at this point. Worship was cool, pleasing the gods was cool, but they needed that gold and they wanted those slaves. A notable pharaoh of this time was actually a female female pharaoh named Hatshepsut, and she was a more compassionate pharaoh, and she continued the conquest of the Egyptian empire through trading and cultural influence and creating alliances rather than brute force, and she wasn't necessarily about, she wasn't necessarily about slavery and about burning stuff and destroying stuff, and she only ruled, she only ruled for about 22 years, though. And then after she died, or after she left her position of power, um, it was back to the old swords and bows and chariots and slaves. So we have a little brief period where um, Hatshepsut, Hatshepsut takes the reins and kind of rules with a bit of compassion and is like, slavery is not so tight. Maybe we don't need as much gold. Let's make alliances. She rules for a good 22 years and then she's out and then um, another dude takes control and he's like, death, murder, uh, expand the empire. And after the bloodshed resumes, Egypt continues their conquest of the Assyrians, the Persians, and other empires. Alexander the Great and the Persians both had big battles and put up big fights, winning some pretty significant battles in and around Egypt. And Alexander the Great actually won over the hearts of big portions of Egypt. 
a lot of Egyptians looked at him and his arrival as a sort of liberation from the then oppressive Egyptian government, which it definitely was by this point. And, but I, you know, I also think Alexander was, even though he was considered this liberator, he was also like pretty happy to be taking controls of pretty big regions of Egypt. (laughs) And Egypt, honestly, by this time had become pretty corrupt. Their military conquests and slavery and gold lust had pretty much made them villainous in my opinion or well not even in my opinion just that's the reality of it there was a pharaoh that came to power during the latter years of the new kingdom age named Akhenatet, and Akhenatet was a total douchebag <laughs> he his his word was law and he ruled with an iron fist he was a pompous ass and so much so that he took it upon himself to create an entirely new god named Aten, which he insisted everyone worship. He had this police force that everyone feared. He was a super bad dude, and if you opposed him, he'd probably just kill you. You'd probably just disappear. So he gets into a position of power. He's like, uh, these old gods are cool. I got this new god, and I also have these police that are just going to uh, police the streets, and anything you do against me or my gods or say anything bad about my people, you're just going to, you know, disappear. No problem. He was a real shifty dude, and he was a total asshole. Eventually, his great-great-great-grandson came into power named Tutankhaten, and Tutankhaten ditched the family name and became a pharaoh we all know as Tutankhamun. And he also ditched the worship of Aten. And he kind of re-stabilized the spiritual landscape of Egypt a little bit. So three, one, two, three, yeah, three generations later, Akhenaten's great-great-great-grandson re-stabilizes Egypt by saying... Aten is silly. We're not worshiping him anymore. Bye. (laughs) Honestly, most of this last era of Egypt, as you would probably think, is pretty tumultuous. And Egypt is trying to expand. They're going up against military might of many of the biggest forces on Earth. Remember, at one time, Egypt was the apex of technology and military superiority. But at this point, thousands of years have passed. And the rest of the world has begun to has begun to catch up and has begun to create implements of war and implements of destruction that rival Egypt's. And to go along with all of this conquest and bloodshed, Egypt was experiencing a very long drought from the Nile River. The all life giving, bountiful harvests and the gold that the Nile had once offered were now drying up. And amongst all of the dynasties from different regions of Egypt trying to regain control of Egypt and outside forces making moves on Egypt, it was only a matter of time before Egypt fell. Eventually, the Persians seized the opportunity and moved in to a crippled Egypt. And their rule only lasted a few years. Then Alexander the Great 
who at the time controlled one of the largest armies on earth, moved in, and the, Persian, and the Persians handed Egypt over to him. So Egypt falls into peril. There's pharaohs and dynasties f- fighting internally. The Nile River has had a drought for a very long time, and Egypt is in peril. The Persians seize the opportunity to move in. They rule for a few years, but then Alexander the Great shows up, who had already created a big influence in Egypt, and a lot of Egyptians liked him. A lot of them hated him too, but he had a pretty big influence in Egypt. And he had a bigger and more powerful army than the Persians, so he was like, yeah, Egypt is going to go ahead and be ours. And they were like, well, all right, here you go. So like before, when Alexander took over regions of Egypt, took over regions of Egypt and was uh, considered to have liberated the people, many of the Egyptian people considered him taking over the entirety of Egypt as a liberation from the Persians. Alexander the Great, though, wasn't super interested, or he wasn't interested at, at all in destroying the Egyptian culture and beliefs. Instead, when he took control of Egypt, he made a point of honoring their gods and traditions he built new temples in Egyptian stylings. And something I find very interesting is, along the way, there was this fusion of Egyptian gods and Greek gods. Alexander the Great was, he was a Greek king. I don't know if I mentioned that. But uh, yeah, we get this synchronization of these composite deities of these, um, we get these fusions of Greek gods and Egyptian gods, and it's really cool. One of because Alexander, like I said, Alexander the Great wasn't interested in necessarily controlling the people of Egypt. Sure, he wanted to. He wanted to move in and take control of the resources and the land and stuff, but he wasn't interested in crippling the culture and the people. He he wanted the culture and the people to be celebrated. He liked the Egyptian culture. And he started to fuse with it. And one of these fusion gods was Serapis. He was a god created to represent abundance and resurrection, which is actually really fitting for this new emerging kingdom that he's creating. And Serapis had a staff, which he used to control Cerebus, the who is the multi-headed dog that guarded the gates of the underworld. He was depicted as having a human form with long flowing Greek hair, but he was also wearing an Egyptian basket-looking headdress. So it was not only this fusion of gods in terms of in terms of uh, the metaphysical aspects, his physical appearance was a, a Greek uh, human, or well, a Greek god mixed with an Egyptian god, which is cool. Or I, I think it's cool. <laughs> and during Alexander's rule, he also gets this, we also get this beautiful fusion of, of Egyptian and Greek architecture. There are pillars and Greek gods hanging out with traditional Egyptian gods, all carved and uh, well, all sculpted and and decorating Egypt at this time. You can you can see pretty cool pictures of it online if you Google like Egyptian Alexander the Great artwork and architecture. You can find a lot of it. 
And it's really interesting. It's a really interesting fusion of Greek and Egyptian artwork. Even though Alexander was mostly celebrated through Egypt, there were still some, or well, there were still quite a few of of people that disliked him and his fusion of these old ways with these new Greek ways. So there was a bit of civil unrest and there were Egyptian revolts um, starting to pop up. So at this time, there, when Alexander the Great takes over Egypt, Rome was heavily dependent on imports from Egypt and was beginning to notice that the Egyptian people were slowly starting to dislike Alexander for bringing in all these Greek gods and creating these Greek fusions with their ancient Egyptian traditions and deities. Um, there were also ambitious politicians within Egypt that were working to dethrone Alexander. And Rome couldn't afford to have Egypt falling into chaos. And in 30 BCE, Rome comes and takes control. So they have a lot of economic ties to Egypt, and they're like, we can't afford you falling into chaos. We're just going to come take the reins, and they do that. And I know I said Egypt ended in 3020 BCE, which it, for the most part, did, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Alexander the Great's influence, because I just thought it was really cool and interesting how he brought this Greek culture to Egypt and fused it together. That pretty much ends the last era, the new kingdom era of Egypt. And there's just, you know, there's so much to talk on about Egyptian culture. Um, There's so much interesting and crazy, amazing things that I didn't even get to. Um, their, Their literature, their inventions, well, I got. I talked about some of their inventions, their use of math, their um, obviously their intense architecture, all of the pyramids. We could do multiple podcasts on the origins of the pyramids or the um, you know how they were <laughs> how they were built on on theories on how they were built. At the end of my podcast episodes, I typically do a fun fact. But for the end of this episode, I'm going to hit you with a... Well, I'm still going to hit you with fun facts, but they're all going to be fun facts about Egypt. Because like I said before, there's so much I didn't touch on. I'm just going to use this segment to kind of run through a list of some quick Egyptian fun facts and just interesting facts that I think could be very much expanded on and talked about for whole other podcasts. But uh, here we go. Egyptians were one of the first civilizations to domesticate bees. Georgia is historically the first place to have domesticated bees. The country, not the the state, the United States. But a lot of the Egyptian techniques and practices with it are still used today. And you can see... Um, beekeeping integrated into Egyptian art. Honey and wax were also big Egyptian exports as well, along with their gold. Uh, they had <laughs> they had honey and wax. Um, cats, dogs, and monkeys were common family pets 
cats being considered divine creatures, as we talked about before. Local councils of elders known as Kenbet in the New Kingdom were responsible for ruling in court cases involving small claims and minor disputes. The Grand Kenbet was responsible for larger cases like murder, grave robbery, and the Grand Kenbet was overseen by the Pharaoh. I just thought that was interesting, kind of touch a little bit on their system of government and how they organized their tiers of governing bodies, which was a pretty pretty intense concept for civilizations at the time, having different tiers of governing bodies for different severities of crimes and laws and stuff. Ancient Egyptians loved and created many board games. Although Egyptian women were still viewed as inferior to men, they were given many rights and independence from men. They usually would receive equal pay for jobs that men did. And we in America today somehow cannot uh, grasp that concept. Women deserve equal pay. Even the ancient, I mean, they had it, they, they had it right thousands of years ago, like equal job, equal pay, bro. Egyptian workers were known to organize labor strikes as well. So as we view labor strikes as more of a modern thing, the Egyptians were doing it thousands of years ago. And as I'm, as I've said, and as I'm sure you know, it, Egypt throughout its history had a system of slavery that would um, kind of expand and contract. Sometimes it would be like, slavery is a thing. Slavery is not so much of a thing. Uh, but then they would get into, you know, how we did in America after the Civil War and slavery ended, where it was like slavery was still kind of a thing, even though it wasn't a thing. Technically, it was still kind of was a thing. Egypt was doing that same thing, too, where it's like, yeah, we're going to not give you any opportunities or do any of this stuff unless you work for us 24-7 and sleep in the basement. What's going on? Hmm? Does that sound good? And it was like, fuck, I don't have anything else going on. I guess I'm a slave again. They had shit like that going on, too. Just like how we had going on kind of still have going not in not on that severe level but in corporate america (laughs) um examinations of mummies have indicated that many egyptian rulers were unhealthy and overweight and even suffered from diabetes uh mostly because they lived a life of luxury and decadence and honestly it's not super surprising that they would that they would be like this. Egyptians would hunt wild game for sport, and many historians believe that King Tut died from a hippopotamus attack out on one such hunt. Ancient Egypt had specialized doctors, doctors for eyes, teeth, diseases, and their medical field was super advanced for the time. And another, another fact you probably already know is that it was completely common for both men and women to wear makeup. In ancient Egypt, it was believed that wearing makeup would give you protection of the gods. We kind of touched on this a little bit before, but along with the Mesopotamians, Egyptians are often credited for developing some of the first forms of written language. 
Um, some of their other inventions include black ink, ox-drawn plows, the calendar, the police, ACAB, and makeup. And that about does it. That wraps up all that I'm going to talk about um, on ancient Egypt. I hope you've enjoyed this dive into what life was like thousands of years ago in Egypt. I want to thank each and every one of you for just taking the time to listen. And I really do hope that these episodes help you get through your day. I hope that they bring you a little bit of joy, a little bit of perspective. I hope you learn some fun facts, or I hope they at least help you get through a car ride or a car drive or a long day at work. And I hope that they expand your, just expand your knowledge. I have a lot of fun doing them and they've been really therapeutic for me. These little times that I set aside to, or not little times, but you know, these times where I, I set aside points to take a deep dive on things that I'm interested in and, and things that I think that you'd be interested in. So I just want to thank each and every one of you for dialing in into the frequencies and <laughs> hopefully I offer some sort of, uh, some sort of sanctuary from the uh, intensity that can be the human condition. <laughs> Once again, you don't have to do anything on Patreon. You don't have to go, you don't have to do anything other than just listen, share with your friends. Um, word of mouth about the podcast goes a long way. But if you do want to go above and beyond and become one of my patrons over on Patreon, just search Mount Analog, M-T period A-N-A-L-O-G-U-E. You can find me there. And also, if you're able to rate this podcast or leave a review, uh, I think helps even more. Uh, rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Um, I don't think Spotify offers reviewing yet, but you can rate it on there. And I know you can rate and review on Apple Podcast and other platforms. So if you can do that, that really helps me out as well. It helps the podcast get seen. Um, helps it get it helps it get uh, put in front of more people so they can hear it. Anyway, thank you for being here with me on this on this dive into ancient Egypt. The holidays are upon us. Remember that the holidays hurt for a lot of people. And a lot of people are struggling out there, so give what you can, when you can, in whatever capacity that looks like. Try to remember that a lot of people are hurting, and a lot of people need mental support, and they need love. Remember to check on your mental health, and check on the mental health of your loved ones. I'll see you next time. Bye! Analog thoughts. Analog thoughts. Analog thoughts. Analog thoughts. Analog thoughts. Analog thoughts. Analog thoughts.